Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Next up is my conversation with writer Catherine Lacey about her fourth book and first short story collection, Certain American States. Because her influences extend well beyond the world of writing, I'll be putting up a video she sent me of the saxophone player who reimagines the instrument that she talks about on the show up on the Patreon page. There you will also find a reading from Catherine Lacey's next not-yet-published novel, Pew, added to the bonus archive. And while you're there, consider becoming a patron of the show. This is a labor of love. I am a one-man band who does my own scheduling, my own audio editing, and promotion, and would love your support if you appreciate this content. You can find this all at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the writer Catherine Lacey. Lacey's debut novel, Nobody is Ever Missing, was a finalist for the New York Public Library's Young Lions Fiction Award, a New Yorker Best Book of the Year, and heralded by Time Out New York as the hands-down best book of 2014. Her follow-up novel, The Answers, received starred reviews from both Kirkus and Publishers Weekly, was called one of the most ingenious books of the year by the Wall Street Journal, named a top 10 book of 2017 by the New York Times, and prompted Lauren Groff to call Lacey one of the most intelligent and funny writers of her generation. In addition, Catherine Lacey is also the co-author with Forsyth Harmon of the nonfiction book The Art of the Affair, an illustrated history of love, sex, and artistic influence, a book Elle magazine called a dose of naughtily narrated A-list gossip from Colette to Ellington, Callow to Maplethorpe. Named one of Granta's best young American novelists, Catherine Lacey is a Whiting Award winner and the John Grisham Writer-in-Residence at the University of Mississippi. She's here today on Between the Covers to talk about her first book of stories, Certain American States, just out from FSG. Publishers Weekly says of Certain American States, that these are stories of modern complexity and nearly Dickensian emotional heft. 
Kirkus calls the collection Riley Devastating, a fully realized vision. Colin Barrett adds that with, with spare but poetically concentrated style, Catherine Lacey vividly captures the addled, bombed-out, wryly, fuzzy perspectives of her lost and drifting characters. These are stories of mystery and brooding, wintry beauty. Enjoy Press at the Los Angeles Times says of Lacey's writing, Lacey captures with eerie precision the strangeness of being a person in the world, living alongside other human beings with unknowable thoughts and feelings. Reading Lacey's fiction feels like walking through a dark apartment in someone's mind, full of winding hallways and unmarked doors. You never know quite where you are or where you'll end up. Like the work of Clarice Lispector or Rachel Cusk, Lacey seems to be on the verge of inventing a new genre somewhere between prose poem and fugue state. Welcome to Between the Covers, Catherine Lacey. Thanks for having me. So... Given that this is your first collection of stories, I do want to hear about the experience of the difference between writing stories for you and writing novels. But I wanted to start with the similarities because I see a lot of of crossover and and things. In all three books, it feels like there's a strong sense of voice, uh, of being swept forward by a rush of thoughts of our protagonist. Um, And more often than not, because your prose is so voice-driven, the story is often told in first person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would love to hear your thoughts about this, um, how much you see these as choices versus sort of uh, a place you automatically start and, and why. Yeah, I feel like both with the novels and with every single story, when, when they work, I mean, there's many um, failed stories that are not in the collection. There's many, you know, I thought I was writing a novel and charged, you know, charged 50 pages in only to realize that, like, there was something missing. Um, when it's working, I do feel like I'm just being swept up by some sense of a voice. Um, I think it it almost feels like, uh, like there's a, I have a memory somehow that of something that didn't happen and I'm trying to figure it out or like that state when you just wake up and you just had a dream and, and you, you don't want to forget it. And so you're just, you're like concentrating on it and you're trying to like piece out like each little element of it when it when it really is working it does feel like that and I find that now it used to be that I would just like for years I just woke up every morning and would write for as many hours as I could until I had to go to someplace to earn money or like do something else um and those years I feel like I was working like it was you know trying to trying to just um exercise out some sentences and just like follow a character until it didn't make sense anymore. And, um, there was a kind of like drudgery to it. Hmm. And now I feel like, uh, like the longer I've gone on, the more I can sort of recognize when I have a voice versus when I'm like flailing around or just playing or something like that. And there's room for plenty of play. I feel like in one's work as well, but to be able to recognize when you're actively working with a real character or when you're just kind of, uh, just writing, you know, versus, versus like being carried away by something that could be useful to someone else. There's a life in it that's not yours. Well, you've cited the philosophy and techniques of a a French acting teacher in mime, Jacques Lecoq. Yes. Um, on your own writing. So this, him being, his techniques having an influence on your writing. And I was hoping you could, you could speak to his approach to performance. 
uh, and the way it influences you, whether they're theories or techniques, um, in term, and, and particularly if, if they influence your enactment of voice. Yeah, so I'm certainly no expert on Jacques Lecoq or his whole like mime school, um, but there were a few years ago I read a book by him that now I can't remember uh, the title of, but and it went over a couple of different exercises that he would have in his um, school in France where uh, various mimes studied and clowns. Um, one of which would be he would have a student put a mask on that would be like this kind of blank mask. And they had to convey character through their body entirely. And so, uh, you know, every every little gesture, if you don't have your face, you know, your face is your most expressive thing. So when you remove that, you see how deeply expressive your body can be. Um, and I, when, I, when I was reading about that, I was thinking about the formation of when I hit like kind of the nerve of writing Nobody Is Ever Missing before it was Nobody Is Ever is ever missing it was just some stories but at one point I finally like hit this nerve and this like character this character sort of revealed herself and there was like a physical posture to her and there was there was like a kind of a way in which I held my body while I was writing that character and she did just feel like it was there was a physical state that came with this sort of you know because a character is not a real person it's just a matrix of ideas and memories and images and we're just sort of plowing through it, trying to sort of untangle what, what is this thing? What is this feeling? Um, so in order for it to be more real to me while I was writing it and other characters since then, I found that I have to find the way that the character manifests in my body first. So he has some other techniques that are interesting too, but that's the only one that I can really speak and, to. And when you say you, you were assuming this posture, you mm-hmm. were assuming this posture of your character as a technique, yeah. as a, and in the hope like that... Like literally, literally at the laptop, it, it kind of, I realized at some point that while I was writing her, once that character was really going and I could just plug into her voice, that I would be kind of, there was a certain sort of tension like in my shoulders and like, it's almost like there was a part, like my belly button was like trying to touch my spine or something. And it was this kind of like bracing sort of posture. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was, I, well, when I was writing her, I would go into that posture or I would go into that posture so I could write her. So it became this sort of symbiotic relationship between the two. Yeah. Uh, well, Jacques Lecoq has this, this quote, the body knows things of which the mind is ignorant. And, exactly. And it's kind of fascinating to, to imagine that maybe you assume this different posture and then different language results because of the, the posture you're, you're assuming. But I also wondered there's something mysterious to me about your writing in the sense that um, there's a way in which I feel like we're going thought to thought in, in, in many of these stories and also in the novels. And yet it doesn't feel like stream of consciousness in the sense uh, I don't feel like we're trapped in the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, somehow I feel like you create this union between a stream of consciousness sensation and uh, being out in space in the world as well as being in a body. And I, I I don't know if it's because of these techniques or otherwise, but I'd love to hear about it because I feel like every time there's, I wonder what is the next thought going to be? And yet also the next thought seems to change the plot instead of just being a thought. It's not like um, Proust uh, thinking about the past. Right. It's It's moving the plot forward in a different way. 
Does that make, does that, does, do you recognize that? It does that? make sense. I think maybe um, if there's, I mean, I think any strong choice you make in a work of fiction or in, in life comes with, you know, no matter how positive or um, useful that choice is, it also comes with a, a, an underside. And so I think um, following this sort of stream of consciousness or of anxious narrator or whatever in, in Nobody's Ever Missing, the flip side to it was that sometimes I do think that the hazard of that book is that you do kind of get locked into her head. Mm. There is a usefulness to it, and there's also kind of a discomfort to it. I mean, I'm fine with like making readers uncomfortable, but... Um, that was, that was kind of the hazard that I saw. And I think since then I, I maybe modulate that a little bit more at the same time. Like, I think that, you know, the things that we think do, it does create the space around us. Um, I mean, not like in a, um, you know, the answer, what's, what's that book that the, uh, that people were like thinking like all this magical thinking of like, you can just manifest whatever you want. Oh, the secret, the secret, not in that kind of way. Like you can't just think anything you want and manifest it. But I do think that the thoughts that we have, um, affect our posture and affect our, um, relationships to other people and in that, in the immediate space with us. And it does change our reality as we go, you know, but it definitely doesn't feel like your, your books are a disembodied brain. Like sometimes you'll read writing that feels right. like it's just a it's mind. It's all head. Yeah. Like it's like they, yeah, it's like the narrator has no sensation in their body whatsoever and they're only processing things intellectually. Yeah. That's a posture to take. And I wonder if some people actually just feel that way. I feel very much like aware of the various fluctuations of my body, like for better or worse. And it does affect, you know, I mean, maybe this is actually, it might, I would, I'm going to put a theory out there. I'm, it's sort of untested. Um, Although, did you have Sheila Haiti on here today? Yeah. That's right. I think she was talking about this in, in the interview with you, um, where, like, a woman's relationship to her body, it necessarily has this narrative, this, like, repeating narrative. And I wonder if, like, fiction, I, this is, I really don't, I'm just talking off my face right now, but I wonder if fiction by women has, uh, the, the, the narrators are often more aware of the, the intricacies of, of their physical experience and not just their, not just the intricacies of their intellectual experience of the world. Yeah. I wonder if there's I wonder like, too. yeah, that would be, maybe there's a PhD student out there that's listening. <laughs> well, hopefully they'll write in. Yeah. Let me know. <laughs> so, so another, one of the themes that I feel like unites the stories in, in certain American states and, and, the, and between those stories and your books is what seems like a deep interest in the life cycles of love or romantic mm-hmm. relationships. So whether it be a story that's set in the wake of a relationship's breakup or a story that's on the verge of falling apart because one of the characters suddenly adopts a new trajectory mm-hmm. um, and how are they going to cope? It feels like the calculus of, of love, um, what it means to stay together or to fall apart seems to be in the forefront of a lot of your writing. Yeah, um, And I wondered if that, how the, how that sounded to you, and if you had any, you know, th- self-reflective theories on why you returned to this ma- this material in in specific. Well, I think there's a couple things to it. I mean, one I think it's just something that's a lifelong, interesting thing to human beings. Um, like we want everybody needs some sort of like love in their life or friendship or companionship. Um, and I do think that the kind of the theater of the relationship is, it's just an interesting stage. It's just ripe with conflict and it's ripe with the kind of conflict that I'm interested in, which is, you know, it 
two people have to sort of negotiate their past with each other and they have to negotiate their their bodies with each other and it and and, and then also just domestic space often um so that's just the stage that i'm interested in um that said these three books were written somewhat close together and pretty much all in my like late 20s like into my early 30s and i think that time especially you're really trying to figure out you're trying to figure out yourself in relation to other people or or what do you want to do with kind of a, whether you want to have a partner or not or what sort of partner or what sort of partner are you so i think there's maybe more of a cons- although you know what I immediately want to argue with myself. I, I, I was about to say that there's more of a concern with relationship here than like things that I've been working on since. Um, and I think that's a lie. <laughs> there is there is another book that's coming up that has almost nothing weirdly to do with romantic relationships. Um, like now that I'm thinking of it, and then some of the some other work that I've been doing feels farther away from it. But I doubt that this. I, I'm sure that there's a book in the future in which I will grapple with with that again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even when your stories aren't depicting the aftermath of love or the imminent falling apart, it feels like you're dramatizing, uh, moments of, of transition, mm-hmm. um, that are similarly charged. Mm-hmm. So it could be the death of a family member, for instance, Right. but moments when everything changes and everything needs to be reconsidered. And, and you've, you've quoted Auden before a quote about great art. Great art is clear thinking about mixed feelings And it made me wonder about mixed feelings in relation to moments where we are no longer able to continue on the path that we have momentum on. So we have this thing, this thing we're doing Mm -hmm. uh, with another person and Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden everything we presumed was going to continue off into the horizon is, is needing to be changed. Um, Can you talk a little bit about mixed feelings, which don't feel like the obvious uh, place to go for dramatization. The these points of of transition and pivot do, but this dramatization of mixed feelings seems um, maybe more challenging. Right, because you're, or, or do you do you think it sounds more challenging because you're not coming down with like a clear statement all the time? Yeah, I mean it's interesting because you'll have these. Um, often women characters in your book um, who either have past relationships or soon-to-be past relationships mm-hmm. that are sort of casting their shadow forward across the action that occurs. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's, I guess, there is a lot of action mm-hmm. in, a, in one respect, but there's also a lot of rumination happening in, in, your, in your pieces. I guess I like characters that aren't, that aren't even clear to me, you know? Cause I don't like, I don't like finishing a story and feeling like, Oh, I know that character now. I think that would just be an illusion. I think in the same way that like when somebody breaks up with you or when you realize you need to leave someone or like that something that you thought was true, whether it's a relationship or um, a worldview or something, when that falls apart, there's something, there's something more substantial revealed about all individuals involved in that transition. And those, those places are just, I don't know why. To me, they seem like the most logical places to to, yeah. to write from. I don't know. It's funny how like somebody points something out that you're doing in your work, and you didn't even realize that it was a choice, nor did you think that it it was unusual in any way. But I I do see what you're saying that I guess it is an unusual place to. Well, when you say like when Auden says, "Great art is clear thinking yeah. about mixed feelings," and, yeah. But yet you say uh, you don't necessarily want to be clear about the characters that you're dramatizing. Right. They're not clear. 
Right. And maybe you also aren't clear, it sounds like. Um, well, they don't need to be clear. I mean, I feel like the sentences need to be clear. And that's that's important to me. The the images need to be clear. But if the characters are clear, then there's no story. Like right. there's if there's nothing moving within that character that's murky and sort of scary, then there's no story. So maybe that cl- is the obvious yeah. that the mixed right. feelings is the place for all great art. Ultimately. Right. That's yeah. how I feel. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, you you once wrote an essay about your love of the Cy Twombly gallery. I love him so much. And but... I want to I want to read a small part of it and pair it with something that Jacques Lecoq said and then ask you your thoughts. Okay. So you once wrote, if one accepts that love is at least one part disaster, if one accepts that love cannot be effectively diagnosed or measured, if one accepts that a person cannot predict or control when such a feeling might take root, if one accepts that a person in love frequently behaves in a manner that others see as irrational, and if one accepts that it is difficult, if not altogether impossible, to explain those feelings, then it may be possible for a woman of 22 to be in love, however briefly, with an entire building and all of its contents. I love that. Thank uh, you. And then Jacques Lecoq once said, error is not just acceptable. It is necessary for the continuation of life, provided it is not too great. A large error is a catastrophe. A small error is essential for enhancing existence. Without error, there is no movement. Death follows. So while neither you nor him were talking about writing in these quotes, I feel if we were to pair these two ideas together, this idea about love is one part disaster and this idea that error is essential for enhancing existence, I would put that forth as sort of an Ars Poetica of right. Catherine Lacey. Oh. I, I don't know if you feel that way, that your characters are are exploring and, um, and perhaps you're exploring this through them and that you're allowing, like not only just that you're allowing error and disastrous love, but that somehow that is all like essential to them exploring. Yeah, I do feel like, yeah, disaster and error and mistakes of all variety are absolutely 100% necessary to progressing as a human being and therefore progressing as an artist and um, being able to create anything that's useful to anybody else means that you will be destroyed in some part while you're doing it. Or by the end of it, you had to build up some identity or some framework of viewing the world and you have to destroy it. And I think that's... um, you know, like when I when I recognize that that's what another artist or writer is doing, as I recognize in Cy Twombly's work, that there was something, his work was really a side effect of his project as a human being on this planet to experience messiness and accident and pain and beauty and all those things simultaneously. I, I become truly like haunted in this in the way that I was haunted by Cy Twombly. Um, while he was still alive first. And then um, now I feel like I speak to his ghost. Like I feel very, very close to his work. And I think it's, it's because of this thing. It's because he spent his life. um, And I don't know that much actually about his life, just from the side effect of his work. And, you know, the, there's a, there's a biography supposedly coming up out about him. That sounds really good. But um, I do think that he spent his life pursuing a truth at his own peril. And so, 
that kind of work really inspires me. And I do think that it's not only like your project as an artist, but it should just be all people's project as human beings to be willing to receive pain through these accidents and through these disasters in order to progress to, mm. you know, newer and newer states of, I guess, consciousness, although that sounds really like a little bit, that's not quite the right word, but I'll leave it there, consciousness. Okay. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Catherine Lacey about her new short story collection, Certain American States. We'll just sort of continue along this idea of error enhancing existence and love as one part disaster. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you've said before that you think one of the, the biggest threats or hurdles to writing fiction is thinking you know what you're doing, thinking you are in control. And you quoted Will Eno, a Will Eno play that says, if we could control life, it wouldn't be life. If we could control our likeness of it, it wouldn't be a likeness. Your, your characters are often losing control of their lives. And I know you've questioned the writing adage that characters need to have agency. And I would love to hear a little bit about that in relationship to this idea of control. Um, can you talk about uh, agency in, yeah. re in the development of character? Um, and also how it relates to your process of, of writing characters that may not have it. Sure. I, I, I heard, I, I studied creative nonfiction in, um, graduate school. So I never had like those traditional fiction seminars or workshops where you get the, you know, like the sort of standard definitions of what fiction really needs and how it works. I was like pretty distanced from that, although I was very close with some people that were in the fiction program. And so I remember at some point hearing from one of them like, oh, yeah, like all fiction, like every character needs agency or like every like a, a you know, an important character will have agency and they'll do something. And I, I thought that was ridiculous because there's just an enormous amount of people on this planet that don't have agency necessarily about at least, you know, some crucial or you know, extremely crucial parts of their lives. So I wouldn't want to, you know, think that we can't write fiction about those characters because they don't have control of their lives enough. Um, so I do think that it's, it's something, it's something to argue with. Um, at the same time, it, it can be really boring to, to, well, it sometimes can be boring to read a character, to read a, a book that focuses on, on a person who can't do anything. And so they're completely stuck in their head because I do think that there's there's actions that we can take whether or not they're the ones we want to take. So, And what about you as a writer? When you say one of the biggest threats to writing fiction mm -hmm. is thinking you have control. What is that? Can you unpack that a little bit? What does is, what is well, that I guess I mean should say, in, in, in regards to writing these stories? Yeah, I guess I should say for me. Like I think, and because there are the, those sorts of writers that like to plan everything out and then enter into the plan and like produce the thing. Um, I'm not sure I like any of the work of people that do things that way. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but, um, I certainly for me, I feel that when I feel like I have too clear of a plan or I know exactly where something is going or I can describe it in full before it's done, then a lot of the energy gets drained out for me. And also I, I will miss all the, you know, exciting accidents that can happen along the way. Um, well, it reminds me of one of the quotes in the intro about your work being like walking in a dark apartment. Yeah. Because I feel like what you're describing is what you're also enacting. 
at the same time. Like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it feels like walking in a dark apartment for you, but you needing yes. to have this, the, uh, horizon to be dark and, and the sense of discovery as you move forward. Yeah. And that's definitely how it feels following your characters somehow at the same time, which maybe is, I mean, maybe this comes back to this mystery around the connection of embodiment. Well, yeah, I do think that the, the, you know, the book is really a book or a story is really, a, um, it's the, it's the product of a performance, which is somebody was thinking about these ideas and they put these ideas into these characters in this situation. And they, 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 when you're in the state of writing something, I really do think you should be the emotional engagement that you have at that moment, I think does transfer. And I think in revision, we can kind of, you know, it's about moving the lights around and sort of refocusing like tiny things, but really that initial production of the text is a performance and the book is the document of that performance you can give to someone else and the feeling that you have physically and emotionally I think will transfer so and what about syntax in relationship to that I I think of your conversation with Renata Adler when you interviewed her yeah which is so cool that you interviewed her I know it's the funniest Uh, thing but just her her run-on sentences and uh, lots of commas and that sense of that rushing forward um, but it really made sense when I interviewed her because, I mean, when we got the transcript of it, there were Renata Adler sentences that she was saying. Sometimes, um, you know, sometimes they were spot on and sometimes they were they fell apart. And, it, you know, in revision, she would have probably put them back together or something. Hmm. So it was interesting to see. I mean, I think your syntax is it's partially a product of um, your like it's it's partially a product of emotion, I feel. Um, and then it's partially a product of all the books that you've read. So the books that you put into your head, they become the sort of, you know, the ingredients that you have to work with when you're, and not, not just books, but I think film, music, all, all the like media that you're consuming and even the conversations you're having, they all create the vocabulary that you're, you're gonna, going to then spew out through your hands. Um, and then the emotion, the emotions that you're, that you're feeling really create the syntax. At this point, I feel like when I'm in r- true control of a character and it's, um, not not actively controlling the character, but when like the character and I are sort of synced up and it, things are ha- like happening, I, the sentences that I write, I don't really have to edit so much anymore. Mm. I mean, I think when I was younger writer, there would be a lot more of like going back together and polishing and taking things out. And now it it doesn't. I don't have to do it quite as much. I still do it, but yeah, yeah, it, it becomes a little bit more automatic. Well, let's have you read a little bit for sure. for people. Um, would you read the Healing Center? For sure, us? absolutely. Sylvia put her hands on her belly, and she put her hands on her hips, and she faced the mirror, and she turned sideways to the mirror, and she faced it again. I lowered my hands from my chest and put them on my hips, too, and looked into the mirror at the opposite of Sylvia and at the opposite of me, at all the flesh and hair and shapes we were living in. Why do we look like this? Sylvia asked. So I asked Sylvia, why do we look like what? And Sylvia said, like women? Why are we women? I looked at Sylvia's body in the mirror, and I looked at my body in the mirror, and I remembered that my skin is the color that pantyhose companies mean when they say nude, and Sylvia's skin is not that color. Sylvia is an ample woman, and she is the right kind of ampleness, by which I mean she has been strategically engineered by God or whatever to cause earth-shaking want in people, the kind of want that leads people to stay up all night hostage. I don't know, Sylvia said. Never mind. 
Sylvia was doing a lot of never-minding back then, so much never-minding that it became unclear if she minded anything at all anymore, or if she minded her own mind, or even my mind, or anything that was mine. She'd spent the week cutting her bangs slanted and balancing grapes on her belly button, letting, the pot, letting pots of porridge cook to soot on the stovetop. That's okay, I told her, as the apartment filled with smoke. People become forgetful when they are happy or worried or thinking about the airplanes of soon, and all you need to do is tell me which one you're doing. I already knew the answer, but back then I was the kind of person who sometimes asked people to say aloud what I already knew. It was obvious that Sylvia was thinking about the airplanes of soon, and which one she'd be on, and where it would go, and what she might do when she got there. I knew she'd do this from the first day she moved in, so it is true that I let myself break myself, or maybe, rather, I let herself let myself break myself, and by self I mean heart, except I take issue with using that word that way, because I don't think we have any reason to pile such a responsibility on that organ, the word of that organ. Everyone knows a heart is just responsible for filling a thing with blood, except it never fills love with blood, because no one can do that, because love comes when it wants, and it leaves when it wants, and it gets on an airplane, and it goes wherever it wants, and no one can ever ask love not to do that, because it is part of the risk of love, the worthwhile risk of it, that it will leave when it feels like leaving, and that is the cost of it, and it is worth it, worth it, worth it. This is the mantra of Sylvia, and this is the way that she is. Sylvia found me at my own never-mind moment, back when the acupuncturist was the only person who would listen to me anymore. Doctors one, two, three all said I was bluffing. Doctor four said nothing, left me cold-toed in my paper gown. The acupuncturist wanted me to talk about my mother. How did I feel about her? Did she sing to me when I was a child? Sylvia was the receptionist for the acupuncturist, but all she did was point to a sheet of paper that said, sign me. And I would come in, and she wouldn't look at me, until one day she did look at me, and when she looked at me, I also looked at me, and I also looked at her, and she also looked at herself, and we both found we liked what we were looking at. And so we found ourselves months later, waking up at the same place all the time, going to sleep in the same place all the time, walking around link arm to the acupuncturist, the healing center. But one day in my living room, Sylvia stirred her teacup, but there wasn't anything in, in it, so it just went clank, clank. And then I knew, for some reason, we weren't going around link-armed anymore. Do you ever get the feeling, Sylvia asked, that you're a lab rat? That I'm a lab rat? That I'm a lab rat or that you're a lab rat? Which of us? Sylvia didn't say anything for a minute, kept stirring no tea in her teacup. Who is the lab rat? Who indeed, she said. And I said, fuck you, Sylvia. This isn't a fairy tale, Sylvia. You can't just say stupid things like that to real people. I'll say it. You won't, I said. But she said, I will. Just watch me. We've been listening to Catherine Lacey read from Certain American States. You've said that for years you've been trying and failing to develop a syllabus for a class about writing about love. Mm -hmm. uh, that the subject of love for writers is a minefield of sentimentality and cliche and that you wanted to focus on those hazards and possible solutions, but that the syllabus remains unfinished because of either books not making it or not enough books making it onto the syllabus that sort of unpack the feeling of love the way you'd want to mm -hmm. in the class. So I, I would love to hear what, if any books are on this syllabus and progress and why, and maybe books that have almost made it or, or books that 
types of books that completely exasperate you. Um, because it seems like this must be an open question if you've been thinking about wanting to teach this material and, and the way it often falls on its face. You know, in that piece, I think I'd named some of the books, but now I honestly just can't think of any off the top of my head. Yeah. Do we want to just like pull it up? And like, I feel like there were some in there. I'm well, not you, sure if... you did mention Swan's Way. Yeah, I had just been reading that at that time. Um, I think there is something about that book in particular that, that overtakes you, that um, that it overtakes you sentimentality, really. And it, I mean, I mean that in, in the best way. It's just I, my problem with sentimentality is that it's it's a tightrope. And so um, it's it's so easy. It's so easy to fall off of it into something else. Um, I think when we look back on I mean, when we're really moved by something and it, it's just it's almost too much to bear and you're just sort of like glittering with feeling about it there's a way in which that excludes a reader or excludes somebody who's not having that feeling in the same way that like being on a drug sort of excludes people from the reality that you're experiencing and your like hallucinations of whatever. Um, and so that's, that's the risk of, of sentimentality or the risk of writing about writing about love, especially because it doesn't make sense to people that are outside of it. And so the project of writing, especially a novel, I, I, I don't, um, I don't feel satisfied. Even even Swan's Way. I mean, it's a beautiful book. It's you know, it's just it's gorgeous, and in some way, it still fails to really convey that thing. Um, well, if we if we put aside other books and think about this more on a craft level, which I'm presuming it's an open question for you how best to to write about love, and mm -hmm. I'm also presuming that you've probably seen a lot of bad ways it's been written about in just working with students who are trying to. But I also wonder like is your attraction towards writing about the aftermath of love or love falling apart sort of a uh, preemptive inoculation against cliche and sentimentality or if it comes from like a philosophical place like Tolstoy saying uh, all happy families are alike, uh, mm -hmm. each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think you, can, you often write about something by writing about the opposite of it. And so sometimes the best way to write about the potency of the experience of being in love with someone is by writing about what happens when that's removed because you sort of, you see, you know, the wound matches the object that used to be in that place. And so, um, you know, places of, uh, of total exasperation and exhaustion, um, they, by, by, by creating them vividly enough, you can kind of, you, you know, what's missing by its inverse, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to talk about the book you co-created, yeah. The Art of the Affair, an illustrated history of love, sex, and artistic influence. So it's sort of another mode in which you, you raise this question of love, but mm -hmm. here um, it's not in the writing, but between writers. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering at first if, if there were any uh, writer liaisons that were of particularly close to you that, that you wanted to share any details about from there. Um. Well, the book really began out of a nice Nen and Henry Miller. Um, their relationship, I mean, I feel like their letters to each other are some of the, like, the best letters. Um, and I think that in some ways, like, the documents that they left behind about their very strange and, like, lifelong relationship, um, it, it cap I think it does kind of capture, like, that the feeling that was between them. And um, so they were really the, the impetus for it. Part of the book came out of this just 
question that I had about, well, if all of, it, it seemed to me that a, a lot of books grew out of relationships and grew out of different times in these writers' lives. And I, I was kind of thinking about, well, I was thinking about wanting to measure a writer's output over time in relationship to the relationships that were in their life and, and to what, what affected these different relationships that they had affect their work, but not just writers, but artists and um, musicians. And mm -hmm. I mean, I found just an enormous, I mean, I, what was one of the best was um, Miles Davis's blue period came out of a, uh, a really devastating breakup that he had with uh, Juliette Greco, who is the mm -hmm. musician and actress, French musician and actress. When he went to Paris, he met her, they fell in love in Paris. They could have, a relationship and they did and it wasn't a problem but then he moved back to New York she came to visit and it was hell for them and they were both so sad to end that relationship but it they were just like you know what this is it's impossible mm. I mean I'm like I get chills just thinking of it right now reading about it um, and that's where the blue period came from that's what that's what I mean kind of blue and his blue period and his heroin use and his like it really sent him I mean I think it's kind of difficult to look at that music now without feeling that um, hmm. that loss of that love in it. Um, it made so much sense to me when I when I found that out. So, and, and you mentioned the in the Arthur Miller Anais Nin that in the case of Arthur Miller, he wouldn't have had a career without her. Yeah, that, that she <laughs> paid to have his first novel published, and and you also imagine that their relationship had a big impact on the content of each other's work, but. Um, so I wouldn't normally ask this question of you, of uh -huh. you because you're you you're in a partnership with another writer, but yeah. because you this is an open question in in both your work just around this interrogation of love, but also in this nonfiction book of the ways in which like love between writers can influence each other. Have have you? I imagine you've tracked um, the ways you've influenced you and Jesse Ball yeah. have influenced each other, if at all, or or not influenced each other. And I just w wanted to throw that your way and see what you thought. Well, I guess I can't speak to how I've influenced him so much as, um, and I don't think that it's important that he's a writer so much as that he's a person who's engaged with this world in, in a really interesting way to me. And so, um, it's not like we're trading manuscripts and like, you know, really, I don't think we're really having any effect on each other's like actual work, but, um, so you're not literally editing each other. No, never. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of it. Um, yeah. I mean, I think he's it, like it, any relationship I think changes the way you think. And so inevitably will change what you write about. It's sort of hard to say what, because I don't know, like, you know, I don't know what I would have been doing if I hadn't met him. Well, hands down, the most unnerving thing that I think writers who listen to the show have heard is Jesse describing his his writing process. Yeah. <laughs> uh, writing some of his novels in a couple weeks. And there's this really great conversation between the two of you where you say that one of the first things you ever said to him was, I've heard about your methods and I find them suspicious. And you go on to say that you thought that the way he worked was absurd and that it was a lie. And I suspect if you're still with him, since right. he's out in the lobby right now, <laughs> that you've come to a different impression of the process. But I can't imagine 
that process not being something that would be provocative in some way about being in a, in a relationship with someone who has it since it's so, um, I guess off the bell curve. Right. It is. I mean, among other things about Jesse that are way off the bell curve, but, um, I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in writing that way, you know? And I, I, I did, that was maybe one of the first things I ever said to him was that I didn't believe that he actually worked that way. Um, I'm, I've since it has been confirmed, he actually works that way. Um, but, um, what was the question now? Well, I mean, it was just that you must have a different impression of his process now that you you're with him, but also that just being with someone who has such a uh, extremely different process on yeah. the spectrum of writers yeah, that I, I wonder that, if that must, um, maybe, in maybe some way. Re, re, reimagine my own process in yeah. some ways. Yeah. 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 You know, I think that, I think that was probably true at the beginning. Like I did, I, I was kind of, you know, in the way that you want to be constantly reengaging with your work and, and questioning your methods and wondering if they're the correct methods for you. Um, I think there was a period at the beginning where I thought like, what, what am I doing when I sit down every morning? Like, what am I doing? And I think since I did, I did kind of set myself a challenge of like trying to write very quickly because I have, you know, I'm a, I'm a laborer and I will move things around and, and, and piddle, um, a good deal in between stuff. Um, so I did wonder what, what was the point of that? But I've, I've just, you know, I enjoy it. <laughs> so like, I, you know, I just like, I like writing every day and he doesn't have to, and he doesn't want to. And so that's how he does things. But right. I actually, it just makes sense for me. It's like my thing I do every day. Um, so it was good to like, good to like realize that again. Yeah. Well, I want to, I mean, another, uh, an area where I feel like you two are kindred spirits is, is the way in which you both are questioning sort of received writing pedagogy. I'm mm-hmm. not saying you're questioning it in the same way, but mm-hmm. I think you both are questioning it. And one of the things that you actively have asked is, is there a different way to teach writing? Yeah. Um, and you both seem to reach outside of writing for sources of inspiration. Mm-hmm. I think of your story learning in this collection, mm-hmm. which I love, uh, which is about a person teaching an elective to uh, soon to be lawyers about yeah. watercolor painting. And in the story, it's absurd. Um, the students question the value of it, but it also feels like it's maybe pointing to something that you're getting at around pedagogy. Um, when I think of Jacques Lecoq, um, and also this interview you did in the creative independent, which it ends with these recommendations that are not presented as pedagogy for students, but I sort of imagine them in a Lacey taught writing class. I don't know if it's true, but you said at the end, listen to the same song on repeat for several consecutive hours, uh-huh. wake up at four or five in the morning. Don't speak to anyone. Take an hour long walk without a companion phone, music or destination. Have one friend who is roughly twice your age and one friend who's roughly half your age. Um, so when I think of that, I think of the watercolor for a lawyer's story and of Jacques Lecoq. Um, I'm wondering if this sort of experimentation and playfulness and non-writerly influence is part of how you teach. Yeah, I, I, I want it to be. I mean, there's, there's, there's the problem of the workshop. You know, the workshop is a problem. It doesn't, um, when we go into a, a workshop setting and we're trying to tell a writer who submitted their story to us or their excerpt or whatever how to write that story better. Um, I think what happens is that everybody is stating 
their own aesthetics and then they're trying to give those aesthetics to this person who they um, assume needs their help. Um, when I think the, the problem is when we're, when we're beginning writing or when we're in process with a draft of something, the problem is not that you need somebody else's advice or someone else's control over your work. It's that you need to understand what is moving you. And so I try and focus the workshop that I run entirely on helping the person, who, helping each student individually when their turn comes up to untangle the parts of the parts of the story or piece that they're working on and try and figure out what does it say about them as an artist overall, not just in that story, and and also help them understand what is what is their project overall. What it, what are they trying to um, what are they trying to achieve? And I don't mean like, oh, they want to write a five hundred page book that's a New York Times bestseller and like all these, you know, outside things, but what do they want the how do they want the reader to be changed at the end of reading whatever it is they're trying to produce. Um, so that I, I try and I try and focus exclusively on that, and then when I do like seminars, yeah, I do like focus more on um, experiences that a person can be going through rather than telling them this is how you write this kind of character, this is how you write this kind of book. Because I don't think I know, like, the, or yeah. I know how to do it the way that I do it, but I don't want I don't want stu- a student to come away from a class they've had with me and be writing the kind of book that I would write. You know, or trying because I think that's a mistake. They can only write the book that they can write, and I can't write that book. And they're the only person that can do it. And so they need to figure out what what are the parameters of their project, rather than what are the parameters of other people's projects, and how can I please other people with the work that I make. So. Well, what's interesting? So I had the good fortune. So just to, to give context, this is the end of a week of the Tin House Summer right. Writers Workshop, and that's why you're in Portland. And I had the good fortune of running into someone who was in your workshop. So uh-huh. did a little bit of uh, intelligence gathering. Uh-huh. But like I was, I was, um, I mean, when I think of like the standard workshop model, which I think nowadays I would guess more teachers are, are find problematic than not. Like if we go yeah. back to like Frank Conroy, mid-century, like the idea that um, the writer doesn't speak Um, Mm -hmm. we don't, they don't even necessarily even need to be there. We're talking about the work as if we had encountered it like on the sidewalk and we're just going to have a discussion about how it doesn't work Mm -hmm. and, and and where, um, and that everyone goes around and gives their comments and then the writer takes them home and figures out what to do. Right. And it feels like from what I, what you've just said, and also, um, my spy in your workshop, (laughs) uh, that, uh, that you've sort of inverted this, that the, the author becomes the source of the answers mm-hmm. in a way like they almost get interviewed right uh, I, I just wanted to hear well, it's more like the relationship that you have with an editor you know where like my editors when I've worked with them on a manuscript they don't they don't come in and say like oh Catherine these are the five things I like about this and these are the five things that you have problems with that's not that's not the conversation at all they engage with me about the ideas that are in the work which is much more important I should say also that I'm not the only person that's doing workshops like this, the longer, the more people I talk to about, the more I find that there's less and less people actually just doing the traditional, you know, Iowa, like mid-century method of workshop. Though there is something, you know, there is something to be said for that method as well. I just, I'm, I'm exhausted by it. And to me, it's not useful at this moment. So, so, um, before we leave pedagogy, um, 
I wasn't able to make your talk. Learning is a mistake. Okay. But I would love to hear a little bit about, you, you say, what can we learn from the alto saxophone, mime technique, cult deprogramming, and other things that only seem, that only seem have nothing in common with the writing process. And um, I so, would just love to hear a little bit, if you could, if you don't mind. Yeah. I, I know like somebody tweeted a quote that part of learning to write is stopping yourself from joining the cult of your own writing. Right. Yeah, the cult of your bad writing, you know, especially. Um, um, well, the talk, you know, I, every time I try and every time I give a craft talk, I will say, yes, I will do this craft talk. And then uh, some time will pass and I'll have to write the craft talk. And then while I'm writing the craft talk, I tend to disagree with whatever the statement was that I said that I would give a talk about. And so I end up having to kind of rewrite everything. And then often, sometimes even right before I give the talk, I find that, well, I, I disagree with this again. There's just, it's to me, like talking about craft is sort of, um, it's, it's just a constantly moving target. I feel like I, I'm shifting my ideas about how to, how to best do this or that, or, you know, depending on what, what I'm working on at that time, like my, my approach might be very, very different. Um, so I tried this time to create a craft talk that I would not disagree with and need to change at the last minute. And so I did this by um, creating a series of uh, metaphors or f things that I found in the world that I think are revealing about um, many aspects of the creative process and the writing process and writing in general. And so one of them was the musician Colin Stetson, um, he's have you heard of him i haven't he's in like he's probably you've heard him because he he plays saxophone in like a ton of indie bands but he's uh, a composer an incredible incredible musician and he basically like according to you know most people who know more about it like completely revolutionized the way that, that we think the saxophone can even be played he does this he does circular breathing which is not new but it's very very difficult so he'll he's able to hold notes out for a very long time but then he also does this kind of like humming singing thing into the instrument and he, he'll wear like a neck microphone so it's like the reverberations between his neck and the instrument become a part of the of the piece and then also he gets this kind of percu percussive element out of um, the keys of the saxophone and it's an extremely physical thing. You can go back and like, I think there's a video from him around like 2014 or something where he's playing it and he looks like he's about to die. Like he just, it's, <laughs> it's so exhausting. It's like he's running a marathon and like juggling something and tap dancing all at the same time and like giving a dissertation about, and singing, you know, it's like, it's, it's so many things happening at once. And he, you know, for almost 200 years, the saxophone sounded the exact same pretty much depending on. The player a little bit and the instrument I mean the, the the score a little bit but it his when he plays saxophone it sounds like 17 instruments I haven't even heard somehow playing simultaneously and it's one guy so I when I get when I feel like there's a limit to how much you can do with putting words on a page I just think about what he's doing you mm. know and I think that there are there's always more to to push into and I wonder if like you know 50 years from now there'll be somebody that's doing everything Colin Stetz is doing and like something else you know um and it's just you know there's there's always more to sort of find in in um in crafts that we think are we know everything about we don't know everything about writing right. you know we don't understand and I don't mean in the kind of experimental like I don't know nonsense kind of like not making sense on purpose sort of writing um, but I think even just on a, 
on a very like practical level, there's, there's just, you can be running a variety of feelings through a story and, and, and give satisfaction on multiple levels that I think that he, he has found a way to do. Um, so that was like one, one of the anecdotes and I played a piece of his and then it was like yeah. another anecdote, you know, and another anecdote. And then that way it's like, I, I can't, I can't go back in and edit what Colin does cause he just does what he does. So the talk was just a series of these true things that are, I find helpful, you know? Well, it almost feels like he's making the instrument unfamiliar yeah. to himself. Yes, in a exactly. Way. And exactly. All, obviously to us by extension. Yeah, yeah. precisely. So I, I wanted to I wanted to maybe tie that in, uh, probably in an awkward way, but I'm going to try to tie that into like this idea of bodily enactment and creating different language through mm-hmm. the body. So it, the epigraph of certain American states is an excerpt of a dialogue from Annie Baker's Circle Mirror Transformation. And I'm just going to paraphrase one of the speakers. She says, do you ever wonder how many times your life is going to end? How many times your life is going to totally change and then start over again, where you'll feel like what happened before wasn't real. And this sort of reminded me a little of the Jacques Lecoq uh, engagement with masks, where he says, there are three masks, the one we think we are, the one we really are, and the one we have in common. Mm -hmm. And both of these together made me think about uh, your attraction to the moments when a person's life ends and begins again. Mm -hmm. So like, all of a sudden, one of the people who in this partnership is wanting to do something entirely different and what's that going to happen and and whether like the teaching techniques that help and help us loosen our sense of self mm-hmm. might be related to this like loosening of a sense of what is a saxophone so like when right. you when you talked about in the creative independent piece like waking up at four in the morning would if we were to act our lives in these really basic ways in a different way where right. it's unfamiliar to maybe we normally sleep to nine. Would, would we create a different language? Would like the different, would there be a different sound to what we did if, if we put these sort of arbitrary, put the neck microphone right. down there while we play the saxophone? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think living as, you know, safely as you can in sort of a disruptive state is just, it's, it's essential. I don't know. I mean, it's so easy for us to get stuck in our, habits of comfort and routine and I I'm a I'm deeply like routined person and because of that I try and work against it as much as I can just so I don't stop seeing things that's why I kind of I love travel because you know like I'm I am in Portland now and so I guess that's travel so I saw a friend and uh, that has moved here and, and then I was walking back just you know through some sort of mundane neighborhood and and encountering just different like objects and light and birds and um you know, I wasn't, the impulse sometimes is to like multitask and like, okay, well, let's listen to a podcast at the same time. And I, I, when I don't do that, and especially when I'm traveling, like the world sort of lights up in this vivid way. And you can see this cat that's like, you can see something in that cat that you can't see necessarily from the same cat that you encounter on the walk to work every day. And you don't see the cat anymore. Or like, you know, I came across this person who's like, walking down like this alleyway and she looked at me and she was like holding a jar and like I think normally I would have like just sort of kept going you know but she was like looking at me and she she just said hello and it was because I was sort of open to talking to her and then 
I was like, oh, hi. And, and then she, she just told me, she, she was like, I'm extremely intoxicated, <laughs> you know? And I was like, I got this kind of, and she was so happy and that it was a beautiful yeah. afternoon and she was intoxicated and she wanted to tell me. And I thought that was really like, oh, wow, I got this like window into this person. And it's because I'm in an unfamiliar place and it's because I'm in a, you know, a disrupted, um, the routines that I'm normally in are disrupted by this moment, you know? Uh, I think that's something that's it's just good. For, I don't think it's even writing advice. And it's just, I think, well, I think all good writing advice is actually just good life advice. Hmm. So. What do you think about reading Touching People? Oh, sure. Yeah. You, you don't, you, you, yeah. you up for it? I'm, I'm up okay, for it. Okay, great. Um, this is Touching People. She took them to see her husband's grave. Why not? The newlywed couple, still sort of on their honeymoon, part of it anyway. Honeymoons used to be drastic, plane tickets, passports, hotels, but now it seemed a road trip would do. It was also casual, and maybe it should be. Maybe everyone in the world could stand to be a little more casual about all these drastic things. Or maybe the newlyweds had it all wrong. Time would tell, or it wouldn't. Either way, she was taking them to see her husband's grave. She had known the groom since he was a child, so she'd asked the groom's mother to ask the groom if he wouldn't mind stopping to to see her on this road trip for a visit, so the mother had asked her son, who asked his new wife, who knew she wasn't really being asked. Okay, so it was actually her ex-husband's grave. They had divorced several years before he had caught and quickly been ended by pancreatic cancer, but they had remained close despite the separation. That's how much they loved each other, that they could be divorced and still, you know, care. Anyway, the graveyard was a beautiful place, worth visiting even if you didn't know anyone in the dirt. You could see the whole town from there, and a mountain. Never figured out what mountain that was. But there, you can see it for yourself. It certainly is a mountain. Or maybe just a big hill. Her ex-husband's gravestone had a trumpet and musical notes etched into it. They had always loved jazz, the two of them. It was one of their things, and she still loved it. But he wasn't anything about anything anymore. I can't believe how long he's been gone, she said. He was a good man. He was a very good man. She thought his goodness made his goneness more tragic. The newlywed couple stood nearby, and the wife squeezed silent messages into her husband's hand. Though he could not understand what she was trying to say, just wondered if perhaps she could please stop with the hand squeezing. She was trying to tell him that this was a waste of their life, that the hours this woman had taken from them were below par of, the, of a walk through a forest or a drive along a mountain road or a ghost town or a nap. This couldn't be life. It couldn't be here. The new husband gave the wife one of his looks, his please stop look. Basically, they had gotten married because they could communicate, however unsuccessfully, in these looks. She had a let's please get out of here look, and he had a just please be patient look, and she had a please, please, please look, and he had a patience, dear, just a little patience look. Anyway, they had created a sloppy language of looks, and that seemed reason enough to get ceremonial about themselves. The new wife felt the long afternoon they'd spent with this not-widow was not a reasonable reaction to the finitude of existence, or perhaps it wasn't that bad and she was just being tired and childish, a regression that slowed her sense of time. It seemed the not-widow might actually begin to cry, or perhaps she had been trying to cry but couldn't. But it was a beautiful day, the not-widow told herself, and she was here with these charmingly casual newlyweds. There were reasons enough to live. She felt a surge of optimism, that all the family court paperwork she'd filled out over the years had been worth it, and she'd turned out to be a decent person and had become, it seemed, a little wise. Yes, she felt a little wise. 
You know, the not-widow said, still looking at the grave. I always thought of you as my son. The young wife wondered if the not-widow was talking to her dead ex-husband, or the spirit of him, or the idea of him, or whatever it is that people talk to when they talk to gravestones. Had her husband felt all along like her son? The new wife looked up at her new husband and felt oddly maternal about him, though perhaps it was just the suggestion. But the not-widow wasn't talking to the gravestone. You really are a son to me. The not-widow rubbed the new husband's shoulder. The new wife watched. The new husband didn't know what to do with his hands. He smiled. She'd been telling him this since he was a child, to which his actual mother had made an objection. Every woman in town wishes she were your mother, but only one of them is. But since the not-widow had a son of her own, same age as the groom, who had died, had drowned at five, the actual mother thought it was charitable of her to let this old friend have certain privileges, an inflated sense of significance. And yet the not-widow also made the actual mother uncomfortable, as she made many other townswomen uncomfortable, because the not-widow had always been hazardously beautiful and had remained so into her sixties. She hadn't had any work done. You could tell she hadn't. It was unreal. It was depressing. The women who were unnerved by the not-widow also remind each other that the not-widow never could keep a husband, never seemed satisfied with being a wife. Some thought that losing a child must have bent her up in some permanent way, but others thought at a certain point, though all were uncertain about where this point might be, one had to buck up and decide to move on, not to dwell, to be mature, to blunt that old sadness, to leave it in the past. Oh well. Another thing about the not-widow that made the townswomen nervous was how affectionate she was, how she lingered in hugs, especially, some said, with younger men, and always found reasons to touch people. What did she really mean by touching all these people? Why couldn't she just leave them be, leave them in their skin, just leave them? Just that afternoon, the not-widow had been picking bits of lint from the new husband's shirt, side-hugging him, fixing his hair, briefly holding his hand, and in the graveyard's parking lot, when it seemed like their afternoon together was reaching a close, a coffee date that had become a lunch, that had become a walk, that had become a drive, that had become a visit to a graveyard, the not-widow put a hand to the face of the new husband and invited them to sit in her car for a minute so she could show them something. The new wife felt, or hoped, that she was included in this invitation, though the not-widow had only been speaking to the new husband. The not-widow fed a CD into the stereo and some jazz began, then a woman's voice singing. The three of them listened for a while, the not-widow tapping on the steering wheel and mouthing along to the words. The song went on and ended. Another began. The not-widow offered no explanation, but eventually she looked over at the new husband in the passenger seat, put a hand on his knee, "'It's me,' she said. "'I had been talking about it for years, you know. "'I finally made a record.' "'The new wife, sitting in the back seat, "'looked at the not-widow's husband "'play invisible piano on her new husband's knee. "'The not-widow sang along with herself, "'swayed with her eyes closed. "'Her not-son nodded his head, half-committed. "'If someone, perhaps the graveyard's groundskeeper "'or a person in mourning,' had joined these three in the car and asked them if they believed they had any choice in being whom they all had become, perhaps none of them would have said a word. There were just too many answers to this question. There were just too many ways of looking at it. Far away from the car, several men were preparing to blow the top off that hill or a mountain or whatever it was and create a, ta a cavity in it for toxic waste. 
and farther away, deep in some woods where no one was talking or singing, there were creeks and caves that only the bears knew. Anyone can visit a graveyard, no matter what they think, and every graveyard has been seen so many times that there's nothing left in them for anyone to see, and that is why we all must go and look, to see again what's been seen again, and that is why the not-widow took them there. She knew much more than they did. She knew much more and much less than she knew that she knew. The not-widow delighted in listening to herself sing, in singing along with herself. It wasn't a good recording, wasn't exactly great, though on certain listens it did sound great, but at least it always sounded good. You see, she said, everything can turn out beautifully. It really can. We've been listening to Catherine Lacey read from her story collection, Certain American States. So you started out as an aspiring nonfiction writer. Yeah. And uh, I read an essay that, that, well, I read that you used an essay from your senior thesis from Loyola about mm-hmm. um, shady activities of a New Orleans nonprofit uh, to apply to grad school mm-hmm. at Columbia. And that at Columbia, you were writing about LBGQT rights in the South, about religion in Mississippi, and that you realized at some point that you were writing in the wrong form. And I would be interested in having you maybe just walk us through how that discovery happens. What, how do you find that um, you discover yourself in the wrong genre and, 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 then, and then find your home in the other? Yeah. Well, I was writing, I, you know, I don't really remember it, but there are pages and pages of stories that apparently I wrote when I was a kid that I found kind of later. And I guess I did, I did write a little fiction just for myself throughout high school, college. Like, I was just always keeping, just doing it, but I never really felt like showing it to anybody. Um, so there would, I didn't really think of myself as a fiction writer, but I was writing fiction. Um, and then, yeah, it was a kind of a series of accidents that that got me into creative nonfiction. I mean, good accidents. And I, I had a really excellent teacher and undergraduate named Martin Poussin, who's a writer in his own right and really... Um, talented in multiple genres um and he just i I mean inspired is sort of is is too blunt a word like i think he 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 was an example you know because he had grown up in in backwoods louisiana and writing had just been his lifeline um he's a like gay man and from a you know strict kind of um religious part of the country and so uh he kind of made me realize that what i was what I, w- I was writing because that was I was surviving like that was that was what I was doing um, and I didn't I hadn't recognized that and but anyway yes I went to, went to Columbia for for creative nonfiction and while I was there I was writing all these really like I went thinking I would have enough time to like research and write at the same time even though I didn't really know what I wanted my subject to be I kind of wanted to write about art or I wanted to do profiles of people anyway there was no time for that and unfortunately I was just left with my brain to write about my brain and that was um painful and I am very thankful to all the people that I had workshops with that they read these really kind of sloppy confused why am I here like essays about Mississippi and about where I was from and things I experienced and things I experienced through other people that I was close with and anyway I created a book through that that was a failure, and as I realized that book was a failure, I some some of the fiction that I was writing was becoming nobody is ever missing, and I felt I finally felt like I could be comfortable in that genre. 
was there an experience in a in a fiction class at Columbia that was part of that realization, a or was that bit. mostly just on? No, it was a little bit. There's. Um, I took a seminar with Heidi Julevitz on the first person, and she. Uh, it was just books that she loved, and so we would just read these. And it was like Bernhardt. It was like uh, I think Zabald. I think. Uh, we read Atmospheric Disturbances by Rivka Galchin that had just come out, and that one was really exciting to me. Um, so it helps that she has good taste. Yeah, yeah, it did help that she had good taste, yeah. Um, yeah, and so I kind of, I, I sort of, I think, amped up my production of fiction then, but I still, it still was many years before I showed it to anyone. Um, yeah, and I don't know. I think now I'm kind of seeing it in a different way that I I feel like my experience being growing up in Mississippi and feeling and feeling and being, uh, very different and also being, um, governed and, um, objectified and controlled in ways that I found very problematic and other people around me being controlled in similar and different ways. Um, I just felt like human life was not valued in this part of the country. And I, I, I felt that from a very young age and it was upsetting, you know, so I, I and I think that's that's been the thing that is the sort of under underpainting of everything I've done at this point. I want to ask you about that a little bit more. Like you've written nonfiction on a variety of topics: mm-hmm. John John Berryman, combat-based exercise, mm-hmm. uh, psychic mediums, mm-hmm. uh, Mumbai, India. But it is this grappling with your upbringing that seems to be the the lion's share of it around yeah. race and and gay rights and religion in Mississippi, yeah. and. Um, when you look at your Twitter, who you follow on Twitter, ACL only four, four follow. You only follow four uh, Twitter handles. ACL- I, I did this after the after the election. I just unfollowed everybody because yeah. I, I couldn't handle hearing everyone's opinion about this thing anymore. I think that's really smart. And I just follow. I mean, now I I actually sort of follow other through like a list. I yeah. follow other people, but I don't. I don't look at Twitter as much as I used to. But, but yeah, I but only you have ACLU, ACLU and the Southern Poverty Law Center and, and AACP. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which suggests you have deeply held political beliefs. Yeah. <laughs> and yet um, I'm wondering uh, at part of this move to fiction, um, how, how you grapple with those beliefs and these these questions that uh, you're you're talking about objectification and control where you grew up. Um, if you if those come with you and you find a different orientation as you write your fiction, or do you feel like they just um, more often um, get expressed now outside of your writing? Maybe a little of both. I think um, the book that really speaks to this is unpublished. And so in a couple years, <laughs> I mean, that's like, it's unfortunate that's the way that it'll be It'll like two years or a year and a half from now, there's a book that's coming out that is more explicitly political and but is non is fiction, um, and so it's difficult to talk about. Is, I, I I guess I didn't feel necessarily like. Um, I mean, part of the thing that a lot of women have to push up against is you're told from a very young age that you don't have that much to contribute intellectually. Maybe you have things to contribute emotionally or domestically, but you don't really have an intellectual con- contribution to make. And that serious intellectual activity is the realm of men. And so even though like, yes, outwardly liberal America is like, that's not true. But on deep level, I think it takes, it takes some women a long time to kind of wring that out. And so I was really hesitant to, ever tried to make any explicit 
political point really until recently, until like last like two like two years ago. I think about two years ago from right now, I feel like there was a change and like a kind of I was asked to write about a house bill. Well, no, that's not true. It was maybe five years ago, but it kind of amped up a couple years ago. Um, I was asked to write about a house bill that Mississippi was trying to pass, which now is actually it was stopped. But now it's actually in effect in Mississippi in which you can discriminate against anyone you want based on religious reasons. You can discriminate housing, you can discriminate employment, you can, like, also a, ver- a huge variety of things. You're protected in Mississippi if you have religious grounds for denying someone goods or services or employment or whatever. Um, and I remember writing writing about that for Guernica. I wrote an essay. It took me, like, a couple weeks to do, and I was, like, a f- I, I mean, even right now, I get... I'm, it, I'm, it's like physically exhausting, you hmm. know? So I go into a state of like frenzy, but I do have specific things I want to say. So it's taken me a little while to figure out how can I, how can I write about these things and articulate them in the way that I want to articulate them without, um, giving myself a heart attack, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so it's been a little bit of a learning curve. I think I've gotten a little bit better at it, but yeah, I've been slowly approaching this thing that has been. I mean, the American South is really, um, I think, just a deeply problematic place. And it's, uh, you know, it it's sort of, it's what the last election was really based on, you know, unfortunately. And I it's now having reverberations very much outside the country. Um, so I've been slowly approaching that subject is all I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, you, you've, you've talked before about this book of essays that you called... Uh, just called a, a failed book of essays yeah. Yeah. that you were feeling too close to the culture yeah. and that and wanting to write about a culture of discretion and avoidance mm-hmm. around these issues that the discretion and avoidance within you having grown up right. in that culture was also derailing you. I, 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 is, is that part of the slowness? Do you think? I think that is a part of the slowness, you, you know, yeah. I feel like on one hand, I'm ready to be offensive and say the things that I think. And like, I think these things, I think that we need to have like more difficult conversations in the South, especially. And at the same time, you know, it's this deeply entrenched, like, don't bother people sort of um, belief that was taught to me from you know, societal, just through Mississippi as a culture, through the church, through the way men and women treated each other, all the examples set. Yes. It's like, I'm, I'm still trying to dismantle that thing so that I can just say something clearly and explicitly and confidently that's true when it needs to be said. Is the book coming down the pike a couple of years from now? Is that a fiction? It's fiction. It's fiction. Yeah. But it's sort of folding in some of these non-fictional questions yeah. in a more overt way it's set yeah it's like clearly set in mississippi uh-huh. um even though i'm not sure if i ever state if, i don't think i ever say the word mississippi in it but it's mississippi that's exciting yeah <laughs> so, so at the beginning i was i mentioned that i was curious about uh short stories versus novels mm-hmm. so since we are talking about your first collection of stories mm-hmm. um what what do you see that either is attractive about the story or, or confounding about the story or, or what parts of you do you feel like get foregrounded as you're doing story versus novel? They're always really contained. Like I find that I, I know the desk that I wrote each one of these at, and I know the time period and I know kind of the matrix of things that was going on, even though some of them got, you know, 
revised over time. The like what what was written first was written all at one time, and so. It, I don't know, there's some poet that talked about like catching a poet, like a train, like the train's coming and like you can hear it distantly and if you, you have to sit down and catch it like before it goes away. And I do feel like that that's true for me with story. I can't really I can't really force myself to write stories. I mean, I guess I can't force myself to write novels or anything either, but I can force myself to write an essay when it's time to write an essay for some reason. But a story even more so, I feel like it approaches, it has a sh very short lifespan and if you can't immediately sit down and write the thing, you, you're not going to catch it, or at least for me, that I, I won't catch it. I can't, like, if I have the feeling of a story coming on and I don't immediately address it, it's gone. Mm. I want to ask you, I know you're not on Twitter a lot, but you did tweet this uh, this tweet about an upcoming book, a contemporary novel, that um, I just want to hear about because of the the hyperbole that you It's women use. talking. Yeah, so yeah. you say it's the best contemporary novel I have ever read, I'm usually not one for making digital noise about galleys, but Miriam Toes. It's pronounced Taves, I just learned. Taves? Yeah. Miriam I, Taves. I think. Okay. <laughs> I was wondering. Miriam Taves just elegantly demolished this whole century, and I cannot shut up about it. It's so good. I just was so... I think the official blurb I put on there has something to do with, like, a bucket of blood. Like, it, it just is this completely immediate, true object. Um, I can't. I can't stop can't stop thinking about it it miriam taves is a canadian writer who has won basically every award you can win in canada and is very well known there and for some reason hasn't broken out here yet and um i think if this book doesn't establish her as somebody that um is to be reckoned with then like i'm out <laughs> like i'm just like i will not participate in like literary anything i mean that's a little that's a little bit hyper hyperbole but um i think it's really unfortunate that um, sometimes the the way in which there are like blunt systems that sort of decide which books get talked about and which do not, and um, I, it, it sometimes is the case that a truly beautiful, difficult work of art, there's no slot for it that year, and so it kind of just vanishes. And I think, um, I think that this book will anyway. It's. Um, I kind of want to give a little bit of a summary of it. I'm not going to. No. <laughs> Can I? Do I have time to? Yeah, I mean, if you want to. Um, well, there's. it's based on a, th a thing that really happened, and I forget what country it was in, but it was a group, a Mennonite settlement somewhere that all the women were experiencing the same horrific dream that they were being raped by this demon, and then it, and then it came came out that uh, some of the women were being raped. They would wake up mid-rape, but they were be also drugged, and so they couldn't move. And then the next, you know, the, after these dreams, they were waking up, like, physically a mess, and something had happened to them. And basically, it, the women figured out amongst themselves that they were being belladonna spray that they that used on animals that was being... they were Men were breaking into their homes. Men from their own community were breaking into their homes, putting this spray on them and raping them. Um, and this is just one of, and this is, you know, it was like kind of mass male hysteria that was sweeping this community. And this is all out. In this the, truly happened. This really happened. This really happened. Okay. Like not very long ago. And so, um, yeah, so this is, you know, the dangers of uh, a religion that represses sexuality. Um, things like this happen, you know. Anyway, so the book is the minutes of uh, an imagined 
meeting that these women have about what to do. And, and Miriam Taves is an ex-Mennonite, so she's not just, you know, jumping into somebody else's culture. Like, it's very much a culture that she recognized and has been writing about. She's in her 50s. She has been writing about her entire career. So it's like she's exactly the right person to do exactly this sort of book. And I can't tell you how just it's so beautiful. <laughs> it's so beautiful and moving and chilling and heartbreaking. And um, <laughs> I'm excited to read the book, mm-hmm. and I'm excited that you're doing this signal boost for it. But I want to mm-hmm. bring it back to you again because when I think about you talking about this book, Woman Talking, and then I think about you talking about your experience of, of, of control and objectification in the South, mm-hmm. and even the way you describe women talking, I think you said, I don't know if you said buckets of blood or something yeah. about blood, but then earlier you were saying, uh, not related to the book, I'm just talking from my face now. And, the, and then this <laughs> idea of, of taking a physical stance with your body to potentially create a different language mm-hmm. that... And then taking that and thinking about um, do women write more corporeal literature because of what we were talking about, Sheila Hetty. So this this idea, like, are they more, are they less likely to do a disembodied mind narrative and, and be in the body? I, I, it's possible. Um, I mean, I had, there's an argument to be made that the mind is part of the body. Well, that's so, what I was going to say. But what I, but I meant, what I wanted to get to was not to pose that question again, but... Um, it feels like I feel like your your writing is really embodied mm-hmm. and um and you said this really interesting thing. I think it was an interview around the answers uh you can google anything, but you can't google your body we're We're so used now to being able to get accurate information very very quickly, but you can't get it about this meat thing that you're dragging around. You don't know if you have cancer right now, and you can't. Obviously, you can't Google whether you have cancer now. So, um, right. I love that idea. This idea of the body being the entryway to a certain type of language. Mm-hmm. So, you assuming the the stance of your protagonist, or doing some of these exercises or techniques, and that at the same time the body is is resistant to language. Well, I mean, the body creates language, like the right. words that are coming out of my mouth are, you know, originating in my throat and they're coming off my tongue and like all part, there's various parts of my body that are making the language that I'm saying. I think there is no separation. There really is no separation. And I think it's been sort of a patriarchal, um, just sort of given that there somehow is some sort of separation between the mind and the body. Because I think that if we believe that there's separation between the mind and the body, then men have a leg up on existence against women <laughs> because mm. women are, we're, we're more weighted down by the, you know, childbearing reality of, and, and the cyclical nature of our bodies versus men. So they can say, well, they're, they're the minds and women are the body and it's bullshit. It's utterly actually bullshit because all language originates in the body. The mind is absolutely a product of the body. I mean, back to that Jacques Lecoq quote, it's mm-hmm. like the, the body has more information. And so if you think that by denying your own physicality that somehow you're going to go into an elevated place of consciousness. And maybe that's temporarily true through, you know, meditation or fasting or something like that. But I think for an entire life, it's not true. And certainly for like the creation of fiction, you, you must be a physical creature first in order to do it. It's a physical act, (laughs) you know, it's not, it's no different than, it's no different than, like shitting or having sex or eating it's like yeah it's an act it's a thing that you're doing yeah well that's a great place to end yeah. thank you so much for for being on the thanks show thanks for Catherine. thanks for having me i loved love this is great 
We're talking today to Catherine Lacey about her short story collection, Certain American States. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Catherine's work can be found at katherinelacy.com. Catherine Lacey is also adding a reading of the first chapter of her not-yet-published novel, Pew, which we discussed on the show, the book that will be bringing more directly her non-fictional concerns into the world of her fiction. And this reading joins readings by Carmen Maria Machado, Vicky Now, Therese Marie Myatt, Forrest Gander, Sheila Hattie, and others. I also put the Colin Stetson saxophone video that Catherine sent me up on the page as well. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatit Ami, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.